It's the 10th anniversary year of an encyclical letter that is quite important. And some of you might go back to the Vatican website, you're good at doing that, and click on Spe Salvi, on Christian hope. That was written by an emeritus pope. That's also something quite unique that not many have experienced so far. You do. We have an emeritus pope, Benedict XVI. In 2007, he wrote the encyclical letter Spe Salvi on Christian hope. Why am I pulling on that? Then I want to talk about faith. Then I want to talk about divine faith. Well, he actually has a very important section on faith in the encyclical on hope. You know, his very last encyclical kind of combined with the first encyclical on hope of Pope Francis. It's under the name of Pope Francis, but much of in it is by Pope Benedict still, is really on faith, the light of faith. But there is a beautiful section that's at least as good as the later encyclical in that earlier one. We are starting with that one, with a section from Space Salvi. There, the Pope turns to a passage we might have touched on already. The letter to the Hebrews has this famous definition of faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. And Pope Benedict turns to that to answer the question, what is faith? Because when he wants to talk about hope, he has to talk first actually about faith. What is faith? And then he says, in the 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, we find a kind of definition of faith which closely links this virtue with hope. And he says something Greek. Faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. Faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. And then he continues and says, for the fathers, and that means the theologians of the patristic period, for the fathers and for the theologians of the Middle Ages, it was clear that the Greek word hypostasis was to be rendered in Latin with the term substantia. That term, you know, it was anglicized easily into substance. The Latin translation of the text, the Pope continues, produced at the time of the early church, therefore reads, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. In order to elucidate the nature of faith further, the non-pope turns at this point in the encyclical to Thomas Aquinas. Interestingly, Pope Benedict states, Saint Thomas Aquinas, using the terminology of the philosophical tradition to which he belonged, explains it as follows. Faith is a habitus, a habitus, that is a stable disposition of the spirit, a stable disposition of the spirit, through which eternal life takes root in us. And reason is led to consent to what it does not see. The concept of substance, the Pope continues, is therefore modified in the sense that through faith, in a tentative way, 
And then the Pope uses a very interesting uh, metaphor that I love. He says, in a tentative way, or as we might say, in embryo, in embryo. And thus according to the substance, there are, there are already present in us the things that are hoped for. All the things that are hoped for are in faith already present in us, like an embryo is the substance of a human being, everything is there. And so in embryo, in substance, that what is hoped there, hoped for is already present in faith, and the Pope calls it then a whole true life. Then he continues and says, and precisely because the thing itself is already present, this presence of what is to come also creates certainty. Precisely because the thing itself is already present, this presence of what is to come also creates certainty. This thing which must come is not yet visible in the external world. It does not appear. But because of the fact that as an initial and dynamic reality, we carry it within us, a certain perception of it has even now come into existence. Faith draws the future into the present so that it is no longer simply a not yet. The fact that this future exists changes the present. The present is touched by the future reality. And thus, the things of the future spill over into the present, and those of the present into those of the future. This is paragraph 7 from Spain. Salvi, Pope Benedict. After having established the fundamentally eschatological character of faith, that's the point of it, it's called faith eschatological. It anticipates the future, the future already informs our life now, the future with Christ, and it anticipates something that will flourish in the end. So after having established that, the Pope passes on to an important teaching from the First Vatican Council, 1870, from a dogmatic constitution on the Catholic faith called Dei Filius, the Son of God. Consider the opening lines of that constitution to which the Pope alludes. Since human beings are totally dependent on God as their creator and Lord, and created reason is completely subject to uncreated truth, we are obliged to yield to God, the revealer, full submission of intellect and will by faith. This faith, which is the beginning of human salvation, the Catholic Church professes to be a supernatural virtue, by means of which, with the grace of God inspiring and assisting us, we believe to be true 
what has been revealed, not because we perceive its intrinsic truth by the natural light of reason, but because of the authority of God himself, who makes the revelation and can neither deceive nor be deceived. End of quote. This is from Deiphilius. And this is divine faith. This is divine faith. This is not simply a belief of a human testimony, like you believe your neighbor when he tells you something, um, and you have an antecedent probability that your neighbor is truthful and tells you something that's probably right, like, have you seen the news tomorrow, it's raining? You look up, you see the clouds yourself. Yeah, you believe. Um, and there are other things that you come to hold because you can follow arguments. And by the natural light of your reason, you come to see the truth. You do that all the time. You're in various sciences. You're in various sciences. What is divine faith is when you come to believe a witness, giving testimony, and you come to realize that this witness is witnessing a truth from God, that God is speaking through that witness. And of course, the central witness doing that is the one who said about himself, I am the truth. That means Christ. But in the end, what is crucial is, as soon as we realize God is speaking through the witness. It is God who is addressing us. We are submitting to the authority of God. Like children who submit to the authority of their parents. They might not understand what mom or dad says fully or even proximately. But they understand mom or dad are speaking. And while I don't fully get it, I take it. I believe because of their status and their authority. So what we have here now is in a nutshell divine faith. Three features stand out prominently. The Pope used a word that Thomas uses often, habitus. That's the first feature. Faith is a habitus. That means a stable disposition of the spirit through which eternal life takes root in us and reason is led to consent to what it does not see. So when we say a person has the faith, you hear that often in Catholic circles, a person has the faith. It means, it refers to this stable disposition of the spirit through which eternal life takes root in us and reason is led to consent to what it does not see. That means, that is, that is it, what it means to have the faith. Second, substance. Through faith, in a tentative way, or we might say in embryo, and thus according to the substance, there are already present in us things that are hoped for. Faith draws the future into the present, so that it is no longer simply a not yet. Substance denotes here a tangible beginning of an eventual fulfillment. 
It indicates that faith is in a concrete way eschatological. It anticipates something, a reality that comes to full bloom in the future is anticipated in its substance already. Third, there's a reference to the uncreated truth, or as Thomas Aquinas would call it, the first truth. And this third crucial feature requires further explication now. If faith is the beginning of eternal life, then the object of faith should be that whereby we attain eternal life. This must be the connection. Faith can only be that if the object attained um, gives eternal life. It's like the link between the bread of heaven and us receiving eternal life. The two need to be connected. Hence, the object of faith cannot be simply true things about God. You see, I can uh, tell you true things about God, um, and someone might listen to them and take them in as truths, like you take in that the world is round, and that the universe has a certain shape, and so on, and then you learn truths about God. That is not divine faith. Rather, in Thomas's Christ language, the direct object of faith is that whereby the human being is made one of the blessed. The direct object of faith is not simply a truth about God, but that whereby the human being is made one of the blessed. We need to dig deeper. In order to appreciate the act of faith and the specific stable disposition that it facilitates, one must first and foremost consider the relation of the act of faith to its proper object. Okay, what do I mean when I say object here? In light of the contemporary ordinary English meaning of the noun object, the term object of faith in Latin objectum fidei is an admittedly less than felicitous technical term that Thomas Aquinas and other medievals use. It has its remote origin with Aristotle and in his epistemological considerations and made a steep career in Western medieval philosophy and theology. Contemporary connotations of object collide head-on with what object denotes for Thomas Aquinas. It almost means just the opposite. Let me state up front, in a nutshell, the proper meaning of object according to Aquinas. The term object stands for the reality, the thing or person that engages an act. An object is not something that you objectify or identify, but it's something that's coming at you and you have to react. This is the medieval notion of object. A golf ball flying at your head and you have to dodge. A car racing at you as you cross uh, the street. That is objectum for Thomas. Uh, the smell of a rose that you take in. 
um, that the rose is objectum communicating to you with, by way of the smell. Uh, the color of the sunset. The sun is the objectum engaging your eyes. That is what objectum means. And subjectum, if you know the old word of subjectum, subject is that the one who undergoes the impact of the object. The golf ball flows at my head. It hits me. I'm undergoing the, the pain of being hit by the golf ball. You're aware that in the modern terminology we have inverted those things. And often when we want to understand Thomas Aquinas and that whole tradition, we have to recover the realist epistemology with which they work, in which uh, all our knowledge starts with taking in the reality of the world before we reflect on how that happens. So this is, this is the, the whole point of objectum, of object of faith. Object of faith is not something we come to hold, it is something that engages us. So, there was a famous Canadian-Dominican Thomist, Lawrence Devon, he passed on a few years ago, he was a wonderful man, learned a lot from him, and he put the matter beautifully in a famous article on that subject matter, I learned a lot from him. And he says, in the case of apprehension, knowledge, taking in. In the case of apprehension, objectum expresses the movement from the thing toward the soul. In the case of appetition, that's the counter-movement, appetition, appetite, that resounds with you, we're approaching lunchtime. Um, in the case of appetition, it expresses movement from the soul toward the thing. This suggests that in using the word objectum concerning an apprehensive power, seeing, hearing, smelling, understanding, one is expected to imagine something moving from the thing apprehended to the one who apprehends. And he says, perhaps the best illustration would be sound, traveling from the gong or bell to the ear. Color, for example, would be imagined as behaving somewhat similarly. The objectum would be what is hurled at and strikes the observer. To call something an objectum would be something like calling it striking, a striking thing. Other, on the other hand, in the case of motive or appetitive powers, the objectum is that which we go for the target or pursuit at which we hurl ourselves. At the pizza, after having not been able to eat anything all day, and there it is, we hurl ourselves at the pizza. That's the appetitive relationship. The powers of apprehension and appetition are, according to Thomas, passive potencies. They are receptive of their objects, before their specific activities are actualized. And so the object has a causal function upon the act of apprehension. It is from the object, let's say color, that the act of apprehension, seeing, receives its specific determination, which distinguishes it from other kinds of acts of apprehension, hearing or smelling. 
because the object determines the respective act of apprehension, St. Thomas takes the object to operate after the manner of a formal principle. And therefore, he can sometimes call it formal object. If you gain a distinct sense that by considering the full meaning of object here, you are leaving behind the presuppositions, the epistemic presuppositions entailed in the Cartesian rupture between the mind and the material world, or the Kantian rupture between the transcendental ego and the thing in itself, the thing on sich, you are right. According to the realist epistemology of Thomism, there obtains a primordial causal that is specifying engaging engagement of the apperceptive faculties by the object. The object holds the primacy. This engagement antecedes and indeed enables then our own reflection on the dynamic that's going on, on the epistemological dynamic. Moreover, this engagement of the act of the object presupposes an order between human beings and the world. We see the color of the apple, we hear the sound of the bell, we feel the wetness of the rain. Object denotes realities, persons and things in view of our distinct engagement by them and interaction with them. In virtue of our apprehensive powers, we are receptive to persons and things and in virtue of our appetitive powers, we are interacting with persons and things. It is at this very point that we come to appreciate fully St. Thomas's teaching that faith, hope, and charity are theological virtues. That means they are infused, stable dispositions that facilitate acts of faith, hope, and charity that have God as their respective object. This means that God unites himself to the human causally in such a way that the human can know, hope in, and love God. For remember, Object denotes here the term, or the end, you can say, of an intentional union of cognition and appetition. So when the, when the object is received into our mind, uh, the way it's held there, Thomas calls in, uh, intentional being or intentional union. That means what is characteristic of that object, what can be received from it, so that we can name it, and we can identify its form, um, becomes in a way identical with our mind. We can call that intentional union. And this has a huge payoff now when we think of the virtue of faith and God being its object. God becoming object does not change God at all, but it reduces cognitive and appetitive powers to certain kinds of acts. And these acts are facilitated by the specific dispositions that empower the intellect and will to perform these acts easily. 
acts that entirely surpass their natural orientation. Why? Because God is radically transcendent. And so we, we need to receive from God a particular disposition to receive God as the object of our intellect and our will. Otherwise we couldn't even be directly ordered to God as an intellectual act or an act of the will. Thomas says the following, From God comes forth to us the knowing of truth, and thus faith makes a person cling to God, as God is the source of the knowing of truth. For we believe to be true those things that God speaks to us. However, God is not just the material object of faith. It's not just that we learn this or that about God, about God being the creator of the universe, God being the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God being the judge at the end of times, and God being the author of providence, ordering all things well in creation. God is not just the material object of faith, insofar as we believe truths about God and in relationship to God, rather by clinging to God himself as the very motif of our ascent to the content of faith. Thomas says faith reaches God in his very being. We believe God directly. We don't just believe something about God. It is... Um, it is like when you believe a particular person. Some person tells you something that they only know. They might tell you, I love you. And then you might come to believe the material, the information. That's the object, so to speak, the subject matter conveyed. Okay. But you also believe the person in a dative sense. You believe her or him that this is the truth. And that, according to Thomas, connects you directly. That is the direct connection. When we believe God by faith, we reach God himself. This is why I have said, Thomas says, that God is the object of faith, not simply in the sense that we believe in God, but also that we believe God, in a dative sense. God himself is the motif of our belief. We believe God on the authority of God, on the veracity of God. Believing God by faith, cleaving to God by hope, and loving God by charity denotes three kinds of acts facilitated by the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, that have God as their direct object. We have reached the point where we must turn to the object of faith. Because faith is essentially an act of the intellect to think with assent. The object receives a title appropriate to the intellect's own orientation. Thomas calls it first truth. God is the first truth. Truth does not reside in things but in the intellect, according to Thomas. 
But what is the case for the human intellect must supereminently be the case for the divine intellect. Truth resides first and foremost in the divine intellect, first truth, prima veritas. Christ, the incarnate Lord, can truthfully say, I am the truth, because he is the Son of God, begotten truth. St. Thomas puts it in his important treatise on truth, De Veritate, question 1, article 7. If truth is taken properly in God, it is predicated essentially, yet it is appropriated to the person of the Son. God's essence is identical with truth, but we can appropriate it to the Son of God, the person of the Son. St. Thomas states in the Summa Theologiae 1, question 16, article 5, God's being, essay, the act of being, is the infinite act of understanding. And his act of understanding is the cause and measure, the cause and measure of the essay of the being of every other reality and of every other intellect. And God himself is his own being an act of understanding. And from that it follows that not only is the truth in God, but that God is the highest and the first truth itself, shaping everything according to his truth, to his essence. All created things in virtue of their participation in being can be said to be true insofar as they conform to their divine exemplar. And true enough for human beings as endowed with intellect, this means that we can participate in God and God's knowledge by inquiring into created truth. But what happens when the highest and first truth becomes object of a cognitive act, objectum of a cognitive act? Specified directly by the first truth, the act must be a participation in an entirely more perfect, supernatural manner of divine knowledge. St. Thomas states, Believing God, we reach God himself. But now we must remember from Hebrews 11.1 1, that faith is not vision. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. First truth in its full unmediated presence is object of the blessed in heaven. Only insofar as it does not appear now is the first truth the object of faith. So the first truth not seen in vision, not seen in what is called the beatific vision, but beheld in a different way on the authority of God, mediated through words, is the way how truth beholds, how the faith beholds, beholds the first truth. How then does the object engage the intellect? and thus elicit the act of faith. Thomas gives us a clue right at the beginning of the treatise on faith in the Secunda Secundi. He says there, 
Every stable disposition of apprehending possesses two aspects, namely what is apprehended materially, which is like the material object, and that by which it is apprehended, which is the formal object, the formality under which that we apprehend what we apprehend. So, in order to apprehend color, the color of the rose or the color of the sunset, we need the formal object of light. You need light in order to apprehend color. Color is the material object, light is the formal object. If you switch off the light, click, color also disappears. When the formal object, the instrument disappears, the material object is not accessible anymore. And that is what he builds on here, on that analogy, with the distinction between what is apprehended and by which it is apprehended, we are turning now to the crucial distinction between the material object of faith, believing in God, and the formal object, believing God himself. I'm realizing my time is running away because we started later, and now I have to contract things a little bit. Thomas draws with that distinction in the end um, on a famous formula by Augustine that you might have heard in other contexts and I alluded already to it uh, that holds together all three elements of faith. To believe God in the dative sense, credere Deo, faith as the reference submission to God the revealer, the acceptance of God as the first truth. This is faith's formal object. And then belief in, in God, credere Deum, faith as assent to what God has revealed, first and foremost about himself, the triune nature of God, the identity of Christ. So to believe God is the first, credere Deum, credere in, credere Deum, to believe in God. And then there is a third. That is the movement into God, finally, is called credere in Deum. Credere Deo, credere Deum, and credere in Deum, tending toward God. Faith is a dynamic movement into God. This aspect signifies the intellect's act informed by an effective union with its end. That effective union is charity. And this threefold relationship between the act of faith and its object does not designate three distinct acts, but rather three aspects constitutive of every consummate act of faith. When you make an act of divine faith, it has all three aspects in it. You believe materially something about God. You believe God, because God tells you. You believe that it comes from God. And you love God. That means what you receive, you love. That means you are in an effective act already united with God. These three aspects belong to an act of divine faith. St. Thomas characterizes the nature of this intentional union with God thus. As a person shares in God's own knowing by the virtue of faith in the mind, and in God's own loving 
by the virtue of charity in the will, so also in the nature of the soul he or she shares by likeness in the divine nature through a birth or new creation. And this is what Thomas even can call in another place the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in a person. That I cannot unfold now because of the time getting a little bit close. But it is the case that um, in the very act of faith, um, with all of its three aspects, including charity, we are in a certain sense becoming uh, an image of the Trinity. We are, we are, we are, the, the, the original divine image in us is being restored in that threefold act. Father Dominic Legg referred, referred earlier to that. And so that is, so to speak, the beginning of the full restoration of the human being here. And when the image of the Trinity is being restored in a certain way, um, it reflects intentionally God's presence in us. The Holy Spirit, the, the, the Divine Trinity is indwelling us in that intentional union between the believer and God. In other words, it's another presence than the presence God has in every creature. God is omnipresent. That means God is present in all creation. But Thomas says, in the believer who is in the act of faith and charity, uh, restoring the image of the Trinity, God is then present in that person in a different way, intentionally. We have reached the opposite point of transition to the Eucharist, more than high time. We shall turn right to the heart of the matter, which is Article 1 of Question 75, in the third part of the Summa, a little bit before what Father Dominic referred to earlier on. Question 75, Article 1, St. Thomas asks whether the body of Christ is in the sacrament in very truth or merely as in a figure or a sign. In the, on the contrary, this is where he quotes an authority which prepares his own answer to the question, St. Thomas adduces the authoritative position of two important fathers of the Church, St. Hilary of Poitiers and St. Ambrose of Milan. Milano, you say in English, uh, the teacher of St. Augustine. Thomas states, Hilary says in his important work on the Trinity, there is no room for doubt regarding the truth of Christ's body and blood. For now, by our Lord's own declaring, and by our faith, his flesh is truly food, and his blood is tr truly drink. And Ambrose says in his treatise on the sacraments, as the Lord Jesus Christ is God's true Son, so is it Christ's true flesh which we take, and his true blood which we drink. Well, the on the contrary settles the matter quite obviously. But consider now how Thomas opens up his own response. Afterwards, question 75, article 1. The presence of Christ through body and blood in this sacrament 
cannot be detected by sense nor understanding but by faith alone but by faith alone it's important what does he mean by faith here that's why he talks so long about faith but by faith alone which rests upon divine authority hence Luke 22, 19, this is my body which shall be delivered up for you. On that, St. Cyril of Alexandria says, Doubt not whether this be true, but take rather the Savior's words with faith, for since he is truth, he lieth not. Unquote. While God as Scripture's ultimate author, surely speaks by way of and through all of Scripture. The dominical words, that means the words of Christ, are exceptional since they directly appeal to the immediate ascent of faith. Remember that St. Thomas understands that faith adheres to the first truth. In Summa Theologiae, Secunda Secundi, question 5, article 3, he states, Faith adheres to all the articles of faith by reason of one mean, by reason of one instrument. Namely, on account of the first truth proposed to us in, scripture, in the scriptures, according to the teaching of the church, who has the right understanding of them. According to the church's right understanding of the first truth, that is according to the teaching of the church in Luke 22, 19, the first truth proposed to us in the scriptures speaks himself and thus constitutes immediately a principle revealed by God. And St. Cyril's theological judgment represents for Thomas paradigmatically the teaching of the church that has the right understanding of the scriptures. St. Thomas gestures to this cardinal mode of receiving the first truth. How do we receive it? We receive it on the authority of God by way of authentic witnesses. We receive it in divine faith. That means, we believe God directly. We connect to God. We cling to God as the authority. Thomas gestures to this cardinal mode of receiving the first truth in a hymn he wrote that became part of the new office of the Blessed Sacrament. He was asked to write this hymn for a new feast that originally arose from the Church's living faith, from the bottom up, from the roots. It was in 1264. In, a, in, a, in the bull, in the particular bull, that Pope Urban instituted this feast for the Universal Church. It's the Feast of Corpus Christi. And the sequence for Corpus Christi Mass, Lauda Sion Salvatorum, opens in its 11th stanza with a line pertaining to the teaching of the Church. Dogma datur Christianis. This teaching given to Christians which has been translated as, this truth to Christians is proclaimed. But you can as well translate it as, this definite teaching, this truth from and about the word himself to Christians is given. 
namely by way of the church's teaching, that bread passes over into flesh and wine passes over into blood. Allow me to cite this beautiful stanza in its Latin original. Dogma datu Christianis, quod carnem transit panis, et vinum in sanguinem, quod non capis, quod non vides, animosa firmat fides, praeterium ordinem. This truth to Christians is proclaimed, that to flesh bread is transformed, and transformed to blood is wine. What you can neither grasp nor see, a lively faith, will yet affirm beyond the world's design. Divine faith, in assent to the words of the Lord, to the dominical words, forbids the intellect to follow the path of the senses, like I see bread, I see wine. For Thomas reminds us, substance as such, substance as such, this in embryo thing, is not visible to the bodily eye, nor does it come under any one of the senses, nor under the imagination, but solely under the intellect, whose object is what a thing is. The intellect grasps the essence of the thing, what something is, its identity. And therefore, probably speaking, Christ's body, according to the mode of being which it has in the sacrament, is perceptible neither by the sense nor by the imagination, but only by the intellect, which is called the spiritual eye. Accordingly, St. Thomas stresses that Christ's body can be seen by the wayfarer through faith alone, through faith alone, sola fide, like other supernatural things. The thing, the rays of this particular truth of faith, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, is recognized by way of hearing alone, solo auditu. We hear the truth, and through hearing our intellect comes to realize it. By way of beholding the pronoun this, hoc, this is my body. By beholding the pronoun this in its substantive sense, pertaining to the substance of the thing, and say to its essence, to its identity, what it is actually, the obscure knowledge of faith does occur, and it is the will that uses such knowledge well, Thomas says, by ascending to the unseen things, because God says that they are true. By giving assent to the divine truth, received by the words of Christ, faith's obscure knowledge preserves the intellect from deception, namely from the deception to let the appearances speak the truth about the substance. It is by way of the eye of faith, whose gaze is, so to speak, directed by the will's ascending to the truth of the proposition, this is my body, this is my blood, that the intellect beholds obscurely the substance of Christ's body and blood, and hence indeed beholds the truth, the objective truth 
of the sacrament. To summarize and end, the intellect obscurely beholds Christ's substantial presence under the Eucharistic species, informed not by the senses, but by ascending to the divine truth, by hearing alone, solo audito, at the command of the will, moved by the grace of God, by directing the intellect to the truth beyond the senses, a truth that in all its obscurity can indeed only be attained by the intellect, faith prevents the intellect from deception. And therefore, at the moment the priest repeats Christ's words, this is my body, this is my blood, we, on account of divine faith, may respond with the words Thomas the Apostle uttered in the presence and the sight of the risen Lord, my Lord and my God, Dominus meus et Deus meus. For faith does not come from sight, but from hearing. Let me close with a famous and beautiful stanza from St. Thomas's famous Eucharistic prayer, Adoro te devote latens deitas. You probably know it by heart, but let's finish it with that. Visus tactus gustus in te fallitur, sed auditu solo tuto creditur. Credo quid quid dixidei filius, nil hoc verbo veritatis berius. Sight and touch and taste here fail. Hearing only can be believed. I trust what God's own Son has said. Truth from truth is best received. Thank you all for your attention.